Welcome to New Retina Radio, and this series is called Vitreous Opacities. I'm John Kitchens with Retina Associates of Kentucky. On this debut episode of Vitreous Opacities, we will explore how surgical innovations have improved our ability to address vitreous opacities with our patients and how these innovations may affect our decision on when to take the patient to surgery. On this episode, I'm going to be joined by two guests. We have Dr. Christina Wang from the Baylor College of Medicine. John, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And we have Steve Houston from the Florida Retina Institute. Yeah, thanks for having me, John. Look forward to the great discussion. So kicking things off here, really, um, you all are, are, I want to say newcomers to Retina, but, but you all recently graduated from fellowships and have been out in the last five or six years. Uh, Steve in 2015, Christine in 2014. Have you seen, Steve, a change in the attitudes towards vitreous opacities just since you finished your fellowship? Um, I think I was a little little lucky that I, I where I trained, we did some of these cases. So it wasn't quite, you know, kind of that voodoo of not doing floaterectomies at this point. So vitrectomy for vitreous opacities was, you know, somewhat accepted. And so you know, I saw that some of these patients could be helped really well and, you know, were very happy after these surgeries. So I took that into practice and really initially was a little cautious at first, but I feel like I've definitely progressed more now over the past few years. And Christina, you're in an academic setting, you know, Baylor College of Medicine. Um, one would think that an academic setting wouldn't necessarily be the type of place that you would do vitreous opacity surgery. So kind of tell me how you've worked that into an academic uh, role. Yeah, absolutely, John. It's interesting to think about how stigmatized in a way vitrectomy for vitreous opacity still is. And you know, to the question that you asked Steve, I do think there's been subtle shifts over the past 10 years, but I think it's been slower than I would imagine, especially with all of the advances in our technology and instrumentation that we've made. So, you know, I think at it's the, the culture is very regional, it's very institution dependent. And you're right that at a lot of academic centers, doing vitrectomy for vitreous opacities has not been really that well received or done commonly. But to me, and I think we would all agree, it's the one of the most common, if not the most common complaint that we face every day from our patients. It really does impact their quality of life. And so to me, performing a treatment for a significant and symptomatic condition, it's really no different to me than doing that for an epiretinal membrane or a macular hole. I agree with you, Christine. I mean, these are really, truly some of the happiest patients. And the dogma used to be you don't operate on a 20-20 I. Steve, where do you think that changed? Where did we jump over from being surgeons that were just focused on fixing maybe potentially blinding conditions to actually some of these more quality of life conditions? I mean, I think, you know, our anterior segment colleagues probably led a lot of this where, you know, we were doing early on doing surgery for you know, corrective uh, LASIK surgery, PRK now, you know, a lot of uh, clear lens exchanges even, and then starting to get into a lot of the premium IOLs. Um, patients really want, have high high standards for their vision these days, and, and the intersegment colleagues have really pushed that envelope um, in what they can offer for patients. So I've seen that where some of these patients that have premium IOLs, especially say multifocals that would come in, and be extremely unhappy afterwards. And 
oftentimes it's because of the complaints of you know diffuse haze and just kind of cloudy vision and then you do a vitrectomy for for their vitreous opacities and and they come back and, and they're like man now i see why i paid for these lenses and you've really helped me get the most out of them so you know i think that's where i saw it is you know a lot of these these cataract refractive patients really wanting the best outcomes for them and seeing that i could offer them that where you know, sometimes they wouldn't have the greatest outcomes just from the lens itself, and they needed this extra step to get them to that point. So, Steve, you mentioned premium IOLs, and I agree completely. It seems like those patients are the ones who maybe have a greater demand for vision, but is there something about a premium IOL that that makes these floaters more noxious for these patients? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I mean, as, as we've been looking through some of our data, there's a large percentage of our patients that that end up going to vitrectomy for vitreous opacities that are multifocal IOL patients. So not just anecdotally, we're actually seeing that there's definitely a large percentage of, of our series. Um, question is, is you know, why? Uh, I think, you know, some of these multifocal patients, you know, with the lens, having the different focal planes, I feel like they're much more uh, it's much more problematic when you throw in a vitreous haze into the situation. So often, like when we are membrane peeling under a multifocal, you know how you just can never get that quite clear view? I feel like for them, it's the same way. They're, they're getting the multifocal planes where they can see at different distances, but it's probably just never quite 100% crisp at each one, but then you throw in the vitreous haze or, you know, vitreous opacities to it. I feel like that degrades it, you know, just that extra amount that they really have so much more difficulty, you know, and whether the different, um, you know, the different focal planes, you know, focus on the different levels of the vitreous as well of those opacities. I think there's probably some component to that as well, but you know, I don't know if, uh, if we know uh, specifically, but I think also, you know, contrast sensitivity comes into effect as well. So I think there's probably some some decrease in contrast sensitivity with these multifocal IOLs and then throw that in with the vitreous opacities. And we, we probably have a perfect storm of why we're seeing such a increase in multifocal patients, you know, wanting to have their floaters or their vitrectomy for vitreous opacities. Christina, you mentioned innovations. Um, and I think innovation has been key to this. What are the kinds of innovations that we've had surgically as retina specialists that have really helped kind of facilitate this move towards uh, removing vitreous opacities? Yeah, well, I think it really affects primarily three areas, John. The first would be visualization. You know, we have wide angle viewing systems now that let us see clearly out to the periphery, an area that is very important when you're considering vitrectomy for symptomatic vitreous opacities. We have wide angle illumination that allow us to see, uh, you know, all the details that we need to see in removing that vitreous. And then secondly, optimized fluidics in our vitrectomy platforms, IOP control, higher cut rates. We're up to 20,000 cut rates now, which of course minimizes the traction. Again, one of the big uh, risks that used to be associated with vitrectomy for floaters. And then finally, in the third area, it would be instrumentation. We now are at 27 gauge instrumentation and even our 25 gauge, which I commonly use for floaters um, or vitreous opacities, these smaller gauge instruments allow us to very efficiently, but more safely remove those vitreous opacities for our patients. Really well stated. Uh, you mentioned safety in there, Christina. Is removing vitreous opacities, is vitrectomy for that a safe surgery for patients? Well, we need more data in this area, John, but I think overall, if you look at the literature, 
over this past 20 years with the emergence of these smaller gauge instruments that we're now using. I would say that the trend is definitely significantly shifted into a more safe realm. Now this, I know we're gonna talk about the nuances in a little bit, you know, it really depends on per patient, what those patients specific risk factors might be. But I would say overall, you know, with, you know, really efficient instruments, smaller gauge instruments, and efficient instruments that allow us to spend less time in the eye, these all point to a more safe procedure. So Steve, Christina brings up a great point is the nuances around this. And, and many of our battles in surgery are won and lost with our decision-making in clinic before we ever get in the operating room. Is this true for vitreous opacity patients? And what are some of the absolutes that you like to hear or things that you will maybe not do a patient or wait on a patient uh, in clinic? I mean, I think that ultimately these are some of the ones I really spend a lot of time diving into their complaints. I think it's very important because sometimes, you know, I think we've talked about in the past that sometimes the objective findings are, you know, maybe they're a little bit in some patients, not there as much in others. And then some patients that aren't even symptomatic or have, you know, just, you know, significant debris and opacities in there that have no problem. So, I found that the objective markers are, are a little lacking in trying to decide, you know, on who to operate on. I think that's one area maybe for further research and development of instrument of uh, imaging and other things. But when it comes to in my clinic, it's really a history taking kind of, uh, of ordeal where I'm talking to the patient, really narrowing down what exactly they're bothered by. Common complaints would be cloudy vision, uh, feel like there's kind of a, a haze or Vaseline over their vision. Uh, some talk about discrete floaters, but I feel like most of the discrete, you know, floaters opacities, but I feel like a lot of them these days, it's really just that diffuse haze to the vision that, they, that they're talking about. Um, and so once I kind of nail down and really feel like, you know, that's really the vitreous that's causing the issues, that, then I'll definitely look and see objectively, what do I, do I see that there's a significant white ring, other opacities? Do I see that there's just a diffuse haze to the vitreous? I use the infrared on the OCT to see, you know, if there's blockage on that uh, image as well. So I think there's a couple of ways that we can look subjectively and talk to the patient about it and then look at some objective markers. But ultimately, I still, I still weigh the, the subjective markers more in making that final decision. Because ultimately, it's, it's, it's the patient having a significant issue that I want to address and see if I can. Some things I look for, you know, I tend to be a really strict in criteria. I tend to really mostly do pseudophagic patients. But obviously, in Florida, most patients are pseudophagic coming to me with these issues. I like to have, uh, you know, them to already have a PVD as well. And then um, I like to have the capsule already open or I usually open it during surgery. So those are kind of my initial criteria. And with that, I mean, we've, we've looked at our numbers in our practice of probably 500, about 500 plus patients. And we're, we're getting this series together right now. And the complications are extremely low with uh, modern uh, small gauge surgeries um, to the point where our, our retinal detachment risk rate is less than half a percent and, you know, without any other, you know, major uh, type of complication. So I think with the right selection of patients, modern surgical uh, equipment, like Christina talked about, you know, 25, 27 gauge with, you know, 20,000 cuts, 10 to 20,000 cuts, I think you've know, really made it into a 
a very safe procedure, but in a right patient selection that we have to determine. Christina, what are your absolutes when it comes to selecting a patient that's a good candidate for this? I'm a little bit less strict than Steve. I mean, I, I definitely think that it is uh, an advantage to have someone who's already pseudovagic, who already has a PVD. But I find that not all of our patients here are pseudophagic the way they are in Florida. And so sometimes I will make the decision to operate on someone, even if they still have their natural lens, even if they don't have a full PBD. To me, I'm really looking for two things. I'm looking for severity of symptoms. How much does it impact their activities of daily living and in the, in the hobbies and activities that they enjoy in their life? And I'm looking for persistence of symptoms. And so I like to at least watch that patient, have an established relationship with that patient for approximately six months before we revisit the option of surgery. Although I'll bring that option to them even at their initial visit, because oftentimes these patients are so bothered. But the reason I do that, John, is because we know that a lot of these patients who do have a PVD or symptomatic vitreous opacities those types of symptoms will diminish or completely go away with neuroadaptation over time. And so I really like to make sure, again, to Steve's point about really picking that ideal patient, I wanna make sure we're operating on a patient who really needs that surgery. So Christina, just to be clear, do you wait until the patient's had floaters for six months or until the patient's actually been able to follow up with you for six months? Yeah, I personally like to follow with them. And I know some people may disagree. They may say, oh, it's just six months total in terms of their symptoms. The problem is it's it's hard to rely on someone's history, first of all. So I really count kind of day zero as that point when they're sitting in the chair in my office and we're really discussing uh, all of these options and putting them on the line. And then from then, I'll usually say, let's see you back in six months. If you're still that symptomatic, we will further discuss the option of surgery. Yeah, I think, you know, I think waiting six months uh, is definitely important to make sure that it's not just an acute PVD that then the symptoms are going to improve in most of those patients. However, I will say that with, with my practice patterns around here, I have a lot of uh, optometrists and ophthalmologists that know that we do a large amount of these uh, vitrectomy for vitreous opacities cases. So, I often now have a lot of the primary eye care providers uh, monitoring the acute PVD and then sending to me once they've had symptoms for a few months. And so when they show up to my office and I've and they've been referred over from some of these these, these uh, physicians that I will actually you know look and see and talk to the patient about how long they've had the symptoms, but then, you know, I will also look back and see if they were referred over for vitrectomy. And in those cases, they've already been weighted out. So I won't, won't hesitate in some of those patients to sign them up for surgery on that initial visit. Yeah, I think that's a great point, especially with that, you know, knowledge base of your referring doctors kind of identifying what you like. And I, I tell our referring doctors, look for in general, I like for the patients to be bothered. And I mean, in a significant way, activities of daily living, they have to be affected the majority of the time. I like them to be pseudophagic. Um, I just don't love causing a cataract. And here in Kentucky, we can find great cataract surgeons to take cataracts out easily. Um, and uh, and I basically uh, like for the floaters to be there for six months. Um, I also am very hesitant to do uh, vitreous opacity removal on patients uh, who have lattice degeneration or have a history of a detachment in their fellow eye. Are there any warning signs, Christina, that we should be watching for before we think about signing up one of these types of patients? 
Yeah, of course. I mean, every patient is going to be an individual risk benefit assessment. And that's with anything we do, but particularly in an elective surgery like this, where oftentimes these are high stakes patients. They're often starting out at 2020, even though they are visually symptomatic. And so you're right. If a patient has a history of high myopia, the patient has a history of lattice degeneration, retinal tears, retinal detachments, even in the other eye, those are not necessarily um, deal breakers for me, but it, it definitely ups the ups the ante, if you will. You know, when I have that discussion with the patient, I'll let them know that they are at higher risk for a complication such as a retinal tear or retinal detachment happening. And they have to weigh that in their decision-making. But this is really a surgery where shared decision-making needs to be and play an active role because you've got to have that patient fully understand what they're signing up for and really understand the risks, even though they are low, as Steve alluded to earlier. Steve, let's talk about this one specific scenario that I've run into probably 10 or 15 times. And that's the patient that has an epiretinal membrane but is asymptomatic with good visual acuity, asymptomatic with regards to the epiretinal membrane, but has bothersome vitreous opacities. Vision's good. Do we take that epiretinal membrane out or do we watch it? Great question, because I just did one of these this morning. Um, but I tend to, that's where they, when I talk to them and get a history, I tease out what the symptoms are. You know, the, the lady this morning was 2025. 20, you know, had a little ERM with a cyst, but no metamorphopsia, no real central blurriness, just really just the diffuse haze uh, and vitreous opacities. And I had, a, you know, I talked to these patients and say, you know what, it's a very quick, straightforward procedure, you know, six to eight minute vitrectomy for your vitreous opacities. Um, you have a little epiretinal membrane, discuss it, you know, say, I don't feel like you really have much symptoms from it. We're not going to touch it on this, but there's always a chance it could progress and we can come back in and, and do this again and, and remove it. But, you know, often 2020, 2025, 2030, if they have an ERM, I'm just not that excited to, to peel, just adding another element of, you know, potential issues that, that could come up. You know, Steve, I think you mentioned something very important, and that is talking to the patient about the epiretinal membrane. They're not going to be disappointed if you have the discussion ahead of time and they end up being in that in my experience, 10 to 15% of patients that the epiretinal membrane progresses in, and we have to remove it so long as you've had that discussion beforehand. Christina, what needs to happen to have greater adoption of, of surgical removal of vitreous opacities for retina specialists? I think really twofold. The first is that you'll notice when we have these conversations, there's a, a lot of diversity and variety in how we even approach the surgery. And so I think there needs to be more study done formally so that we can identify best practices. Should we be lifting the hyloid every time? Should we you know, minimize it and only allow patients who have a PVD to, to undergo procedures like this? We need more discussion and investigation in that area and also continued innovation. Our instruments, as they get safer and safer, and I'm sure that there will be continued um, advances in, in, in our area. And as this surgery becomes more safe, that risk benefit assessment is going to continue to shift, allowing us to treat even more patients than probably what we are now. And then the second thing that I really liked about what Steve mentioned earlier is we really need this 
improved community awareness. We need patients educated that there are different options and what the risks of different options are because they see a lot of things online, some of which may not be true. And we also need an, a collaborative approach. I really like how Steve has arranged that, um, that situation in his area where the optometrist that he's partnered with can also be following these patients and know what types of patients he would be willing to offer this surgery to. So, you know, lastly, we need to really destigmatize this type of procedure for symptomatic vitreous opacities. It's a real condition. It truly impacts patients' lives on a daily basis. And now that we have the technology to be able to address it in such a successful and generally very safe way, I think it's time that we continue this discussion and expand it further within our own community. And last question for you, Steve. You're talking to a surgeon now that's listening, that's never done vitrectomy for vitreous opacities. What would be some pearls of advice if they're thinking about getting into doing this? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, not to you know, beat a dead horse with the criteria that I use, but that's an easy first place to start is to find, you know, have patients that, you know, are, are symptomatic and, you know, bothered significantly as we've talked about and, you know, affecting daily living and all those, um, you know, factors, but taking, you know, the low hanging fruit at first, you know, making sure, you know, don't go out and do a fake non-PVD floater patient, you know, first, because, you know, what's going to happen if they have a complication RD or something, you're going to quickly say, man, I, why am I doing these? You know, this, that was, you know, not, not the best idea, but you take that pseudo fake with a PVD and you start to identify those patients and start those as your first cases, you're gonna get more and more comfortable and see that you know, it's a safe procedure. You're gonna get used to what, what you need to do. You're going to tease out you know, the patients that you know, really are affected significantly and then come back and are extremely happy afterwards. I would say they're some of our happiest patients that we see these days. Um, and really trying to point them in the right pointing our, the surgeons in the right direction of saying, let's, let's walk before we run in this so that you don't get over your head and start to have, you know, more complications from more, you know, borderline type of cases and start with the low hanging fruit in that respect. And then, you know, really just focus on the technology. You know, we've got, you know, such the small gauge instrumentation, 25, 27 gauge and 10 to 20,000 cut rates, you know, small incisions, make sure you know, you've got your technique down. It should be a very quick procedure. Don't spend a lot of time in the eye. Get in what you need to do, corvitrectomy, shave a little bit up to the, the periphery, and then you know, be done. Make sure to always, always, always scleral depress and check the periphery. You know, that's the one of the most important steps. I would say I, I, I tell any anybody observing with me or anyone I talk to about this, I feel like that's probably the number one most important step of this procedure. You know, we're all used to doing the vitrectomy parts, but, you know, this is the one where you don't want to miss a tear because, you know, those, it's, a, it's easily avoidable. And I'd say if there's a suspicious, a suspicious, a suspicious area, don't hesitate to laser it. Um, you know, obviously any lattice, things like that, I, I would often laser, but scleral depressed, make sure you have good viewing of the periphery and, you know, make sure um, you set yourself up for success. Well, that's it for this episode of Vitreous Opacities. I would like to give a special thank you to our panelists, Christina Wing and Steve Houston. Be sure to subscribe to New Retina Radio on whatever podcast platform you use. We'll have more from this series coming in the near future. For now, I'm John Kitchens. Thanks for listening.